Welcome, hello, this is the NTT20 podcast, strap yourselves in, sponsored by Betfair, it's myself Ali Maxwell and him George Ellick recapping a week of EFL action, what a weekend it was as well. In the championship it was derby day and Swans went absolutely kabango in Cardiff. Rob Edwards and Luton dish out hell and high water for Watford and North End were peerless in thumping Blackpool. What do you reckon? Does the Prem beckon for Heckenbottom? <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's a war knock life for Huds. It's a war knock life for Huds. Stead of folding, they score four. Stead of losing, they get wins. It's a war knock life. Definitely regret that one. Uh, how about in League One? <laughs> Where the Ips switch was flicked once more. Wednesday, flinch against Imps. Tykes and Addicts score five and six. And a rare feeling of bonheur for Mark Bonner and Cambridge. And one level below, Orient are bullish after hellish Mellish own goal. Bantams and Stags, top of the food chain in the playoff battle. Barrow have got to be pleased with their late winner. And the bottom two, both won to launch a grenade into the relegation battle. Good to have you with us, everyone. Hello, George. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It really is uh, another remarkable intro from you there. Um, I, I think I can speak on behalf of everybody listening to you broadcast right now that it was 10 out of 10, but the the final word of the uh, Warnock song being wins was a real disappointment. Just the everything rhymes and everything you do and then you've just put in you know you've got the word more like right in front of you there yeah and you've gone for wins so instead of folding they score four instead of losing they win more yeah because it's back to back wins yes thanks for that how are you my friend i am well thank you very much i'm well how are you great energized just love Mm. april EFL football. The music's so good, so I am just going to mention that. At 7am this morning, a lot of subscribers of the EFL newsletter by NTT20 had some weekend notes delivered into their inbox with some thoughts on each game, some content in the form of limbs from Swansea fans, goals from Reed and Hendry and others, and some very up-to-date pop culture reference as well, including Keith from The Office and Emma Thompson in Love Actually. Emma Thompson's getting a lot of airtime at the moment on this pod. I hope she listens because um, and Love Actually is a film, which is you know I'm less keen. On. <laughs> yeah, of course, Emma Thompson, mother of Curtis Thompson, Wickham central midfielder. So yeah. there is an EFL link at the very least. Uh, NTT20.substack.com for all that. Get involved, please, and thanks to those who've been so kind. And please do share with friends that you think might like an EFL newsletter thrice weekly in their inbox. George, the championship had itself a billboard weekend. Absolutely brilliant at top, middle and bottom. Let's start with the race for automatic promotion. Burnley nil, Sunderland nil. This one on, on Friday night, uh, it's it sort of... It was a quiet start to a busy weekend in the champ, but an interesting game, even so. Yeah, a game that I guess promised quite a lot and, and didn't really deliver. Um, weird in terms of where both teams are. Sunderland fans obviously hoping they can put a run of three or four wins together that would insert them in the playoff race, but realistically it's probably not that likely. A nil-nil draw away at Burnley, clearly a good result, but actually doesn't really do much for their hopes of getting into that. And for Burnley, you know, we're anticipating it's going to be um, maybe not a procession because they've got that big game on Easter Monday against Sheffield United, but a matter of time until their Premier League return is confirmed and probably the title as well. Um, but because the first game is so important, you know, the the game back in October where Sunderland were, were 2-0 up at half-time, uh, Burnley at the time were a team who were throwing away leads regularly. 
and certainly weren't in a dominant position in the league table. They came back and won the game 4-2 and then won 13 of the next 14 games. Um, in my mind, that first game was not only incredibly entertaining, but probably one of the most pivotal um, games of the championship season so far in terms of what's going to happen. Because if, if Burnley lose that game, do they end up going on the run that, that sees them double digits clear at the top of the table? Maybe yes. not. Um, but I think because of, because of that first uh, that first one, this felt like it was going to be a great game for the neutral. And as is often the way, both teams kind of cancel each other out. I think Sunderland... Impressive defensive display, would you not say? And more so, I would say. I thought they were good at, at, um, at curtailing Burnley's... Um, you know, attacking threat. I think really interestingly, Tony Mowbray has got Sutherland to be a, a really aggressive out of possession side this season. And there was a very clear switch from that where they decided to sit off Burnley and let them have the ball, especially in deeper areas, which worked. Um, they couldn't really find a way through and they were dangerous on the break. Not only did they have a goal disallowed, but um, Ahmad had a deflected effort that came off the bar. Sunderland, despite, you know, if you look to the XG battle Burnley win it but in terms of who actually came closest to scoring it was the the away side so you know I don't think it's going to matter too much it's kind of frustrating for as somebody who still maintains that Mowbray is is a very good manager to see that you know it's another season a third season in a row that he's managed where a team looked like they're in a a decent position to mount a a playoff challenge which looks like it's going to fizzle out but um, I don't think that's anything to hold against him Uh, I think it's circumstantial and it's easy to forget that at the beginning of the season when you know when this campaign started a playoff push certainly wasn't on the cards so um yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they get on from now uh, to the end of the season because it was a decent performance. It is my great pleasure to bring you the first permutation of the season because Burnley can be promoted on Friday. Wow. If Luton draw or lose in the early game against Millwall and Burnley win in the late game against Middlesbrough, they will have their promotion confirmed. It could be Friday. It could be Monday. It could be neither of those days. We'll see you next week. That's set. It could be never. Oh my god! Imagine that. <laughs> that would be the probably the first time I'd ever publicly use the word bottle job. <laughs> yeah. I back myself to do so. Uh, it would have to be that. Um, okay, that sets up what's happening beneath them, and quite a lot's happening beneath them. George, I mean, really, when you talk about Borough, you have to talk about Sheffield United at the same time. Huddersfield four, Middlesbrough. Two, surely the result of the day and possibly the most surprising result in the championship so far this season. Norwich City nil, Sheffield United won. A massive weekend for Sheffield United. A massive weekend for Huddersfield Town. A disappointing weekend for Middlesbrough. Where to start here? Who knows? I mean, I think we've got to start with Huddersfield-Middlesbrough, which, as you say, I, I guess coming into the game, given that Huddersfield had taken four points off Norwich and, Cove- uh, Norwich and Coventry, you know, there was some precedent that there was a turnaround um, and that Neil Warnock was starting to get a, a, a tune out of his players. But at 1-0, Borough at half-time in this one, where Borough were well on top in the first half as well. Beautiful goal they scored. Beautiful goal. What, the Marcus Force goal? Yeah, yeah. Fa- beautiful counter-attack. So many nice touches in there. Good movement. Well, if you're, if you're calling that a beautiful goal, I'm going to give Josh Ruffle some credit because <laughs> even though even though he picked up the ball on the left-hand side and he, and he managed to kind of dribble through the Borough players with Borough defenders taking most of the touches which is kind of strange um, That's what I call a Luis Suarez special that when you dribble yeah. you just kick it onto a defender back onto you and then you've got past him and it's kind of like you've completed a dribble but at what cost the cost to the aesthetics he, he's in fairness got a decent goal scoring record but the goals that he scores are generally either 
headers from set pieces or back post tap-ins making the kind of overlapping run. I've never seen him in his time at Oxford take on four players and then a, a brilliant finish as well. And that was the catalyst for just a crazy 10 minutes where Josh Caroma did a did a Josh Caroma goal um, to make it 2-1. Um, and then Matty Pearson from a set piece uh, gets gets the one after and then scores from the second phase after a set piece to make it 4-1. Um, you know, in terms of the analysis of this, it's been true and has been the case for the whole season that Borough, despite their dominance and their incredible points tally, very rarely have games where they shut up shop defensively. You know, if you look over the course of, of their time under Michael Carrick, generally they will create by far the better chances in the game, score more goals, but the opposition will always have opportunities, will always be able to create themselves and often do score themselves. So I think when you're set up like this, you know, unlike, for example, Burnley, who are exceptionally good at managing games and just completely avoiding the issue and, and preventing the opposition from creating too much. So I wouldn't necessarily look at this as being a borough, you know, wobble or a slip. I just think when you approach games the way that they do, when you put pour as many men forward as they do, you are going to sometimes come off the wrong end in what is always going to be a high expected goal line game. And that's maybe what happened here. But And generally, if the games are high scoring and you're as good at scoring as they are, that is likely to suit them. For sure, exactly. More often than exactly. not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and Huddersfield were clinical with their chances. You know, they created the better chances in the game. There's no denying that. And they were fully deserving of their win. And in my mind, they were far more deserving of this three points against Borough than than maybe the four points they picked up in the two games prior where they were, you know, they were living on the edge a bit, they were being clinical, um, but they weren't necessarily a constant threat. That wasn't the case here. Um, Neil Warnock coming out after the game and saying, the bookies had a team of mine at five to one. We were five to one with the bookies. What an insult that is. <laughs> I've never been five to one at home in my life. It helped with my team talk that. And I hope they lost some money today. Not sure necessarily who he means by they, uh, George, but I would also love to know what price Cardiff were at home to Manchester City on the 22nd <laughs> of September 2018, which they lost 5-0. Neil, if you're listening, I've got bad news for you. I can guarantee you that you beating Middlesbrough was absolutely fantastic news for the bookies and a, and a, and a, <laughs> and a big coupon buster uh, for the punters. Huddersfield scored 11% of their total league goals this season in 20 minutes, which is 0.5% of their total league minutes this season. It was, I mean, it was an eviscerating and exciting 20 minutes for Huddersfield. It's also just a complete freak, like the perfect freak at the perfect time. Dex, who's a Borough fan on the squad, was uh, he sort of went through every phase of emotions after this one, from 1-0 up at halftime feeling super comfy to what just happened. And then eventually he just went, I think I'm over it. Everyone's been Warnocked a few times in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's fair. And I think that's what Michael Carrick has to get across to his players. I think the issue that he might have now is that they've gone at half time looking like they might really close the gap to Sheffield United to suddenly not only being six points behind, but also having Luton come alongside them. You know, if we're if we're still calling this a promotion race, then it is a three horse race regardless that that is you know unarguable now that any anything otherwise the fact that blades still have to go to burnley on easter monday means this is still very open i think we have to say that 
um, it's a real shame that we don't have Luton or, or Borough playing um, Sheffield United again between now and the end of the season because that would really be you know, getting towards a kind of playoff style game um, if they were, but sadly not to be the case. Um, but I'm sure Carrick will be able to, you know, get his players over it pretty quickly. We do have Luton at home to Middlesbrough on the 24th of April, which, which, I mean, at this stage, as you say, it's it's so far in Sheffield United's favour. But at the very least, that game, which is the third final game of the season, could be basically lose, and that's you. That's you done for this. Yeah, it could be, or it could be two teams who are already in the playoffs jockeying for position. Um, you know, we'll have to see. If, if at least if it was if it was against you know, Sheffield United for either of those sides, it would be a, a genuine six pointer. But anyway, I mean. It's it's still feasibly on, but for Sheffield United, their win at Norwich was um, the most important result, I would say, amongst those those top teams because um, Borough will have other chances. Obviously, you know, Huddersfield's win trumps it all, but that's in the, in the relegation picture. Um, whereas Sheffield United going to Norwich, getting that win um, in a, what was a, a pretty scrappy game, um, I loved Paul Heckingbottom say afterwards that he was upset that the goal was onside. As if he would, he loved the housery. Upset that the goal was onside. What was he talking about? As in, I think he wanted it. He wanted it to be offside, so they'd be annoyed. Oh God, we're really <laughs> through the looking glass now, aren't we? I That's know. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I was a bit upset actually when I saw it was onside. As if they're so automatic talking about referee and refereeing decisions now that they'll bring it up when it's right to say they wish it was wrong. I mean, that's. What we got ourselves into here, anyway. I don't know, mate. McAtee, the winner. Very little in the game, as you say. I think it was seven shots total each, uh, one on target each. Uh, Ahmed Hodzic did hit the bar as well, but it's a, it's a grind of an away win. It, it's a, a massive three points for Sheffield United, six points ahead of Borough, as you say, and they've played uh, and they've got a game in hand as well. That game in hand comes quite late on in the season it's because of their FA Cup exploits. I think I think they play their game in hand after Borough have played 45 games. So it could be could be academic by that point. It's been uh, such a topsy-turvy eight to ten weeks. It's been a joy to cover. It feels like every other week we are bigging up Middlesbrough, bigging up Sheffield United, bigging up Middlesbrough, bigging up Sheffield United. But I have so much respect for the way that they've coped with the pressure, the pressure, the sporting pressure of Middlesbrough. And then I guess just the outside pressure of you know, the neutral's excitement of a race that could go down to, to the final day or, or something of that nature. They have, t- to a pretty decent extent, actually kept it at arm's length. And, and this is uh, another episode in the story. <clears throat> George, as you mentioned, and wow, this might surprise some, Luton Town are now level on points with Middlesbrough, having played the same amount of games. They embarrassed Watford on Saturday on quite a few levels, which we shall get into. The match itself, I, 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 I was going to say I couldn't believe how comfortable it was, but I absolutely could. This exact level of performance from both teams was no surprise whatsoever. Pure control, really, from Luton, and they scored goals at just the right time as well. Yeah, they did. I mean, it, I don't think it really mattered too much when they scored because um, the level of dominance they showed over Watford was just so great. This was... I mean, when you're tracking the progress of two clubs and you had Luton go to Watford and be sent packing 4-0 earlier in the season at a time where you know both teams were doing okay, um, anyone questioning 
the job that Rob Edwards is doing, or maybe not giving him due credit because you know they were doing okay before he before he he came to the club because they did okay last season. I think has to reevaluate because um, this wasn't you know if we sit this is two rivals against each other, one with a far wealthier um, squad, a much bigger stadium, bigger fan base, just historically a bigger club. And the team who are supposedly smaller, with a smaller budget, with lower expectations to start the season, the golfing quality was so wide, with that team being so much better, that you've just got to, you know, A, wonder what is going on at Watford, but B, it's just exhibit F in terms of just how good... Uh, how well run Luton are and how sustainable what they're doing is. You know, this is no flash in the pan. This isn't a Huddersfield from last season where, um, you know, Carlos Corbran, a very good manager, managed to capture a moment and a squad and, and take them on a journey very, very close to the sun. This is a Luton side who are there where they are on merit. The level of the, their performance has been consistent over the course of, you know, 18 months and even, you know, overachievement from before that as well. In terms of pure narrative, just so much here in terms of the, the Rob Edwards um, storyline with, um, especially when you consider, I heard when I was on Five Live on Saturday, um, Chap has mentioned after I came off air that uh, when the two teams, no, when Rob Edwards was sacked from Watford, Watford were fourth and Luton were tenth. And right now Luton are fourth and Watford are tenth. You've got, Gabriel Osho, who scored the first goal, who was sent off in that 4-0 defeat earlier on in the campaign. You know, this was just the the, the game of, of dreams, you have to say. Um, although I do feel sorry for our mate, uh, Luton Town Analytics, whose wife is a massive Man City fan. And one of them had to stay at home and look after the baby. And he lost the argument. No. And so his wife was at, was at Man City Liverpool and oh, he couldn't man. go to the game. <laughs> Oh no, oh no. Look, Watford have made a habit this season of poor performances, but this was about as bad as it's got. They're obviously on their third manager at this point, uh, Chris Wilder, and it hasn't taken him long to decide what he believes to be the issue, and that is that the players, the motivation of the players, or lack thereof, um, he's calling them out after however many games he's had in charge, three maybe now. Um, We have players who are so-called talented players. It is true. They are called talented players quite regularly. And I think we know what he's getting at here. How many times did we turn the ball over? The fans want to see a team and their reaction at the end of the game said everything. I'm hurting. Are the players? You'd have to ask them. It's a a hugely low ebb for Watford Football Club. It's been difficult in the past to consistently criticise the approach of the owners when generally they've, they've got results. You know, you have to think back to their last season in the championship where they... Um, Cisco Munoz took them up um, after they sacked um, Vladimir Ivic early in the season. Yeah. Like it was, it was a weird season. They did the whole sacking thing when they were doing okay, and they, and they went up. Um, the issue, in my mind, and where I'd be so frustrated as a Watford fan, is that, in my opinion, in the summer they got it right with an appointment, and they made all the right noises, and everything they said was right. And now the man that they identified to be the long-term boss for them is managing their closest rivals, has just played them off the park and looks like he might take their rivals to the Premier League. If that isn't just some really succinct evidence that some people or some person 
involved in the decision making at Watford is getting it wrong with their approach, then I, I I don't know what else I can tell them. Like if there aren't, you know, I don't know whether it's Gino Pozzo or whoever is advising him or, or someone else in the Pozzo family, whoever it might be, must look back at this and look at what Edwards is doing and think to themselves like, yeah, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we should have actually stuck to our guns longer than just a few weeks. It is just a mess. So then I guess my question to you is, let's say they finish the season terribly. Wilder has no particular impact on results in the next eight games on top of the ones that he's had already. Do they? Do you still go, okay, is Wilder still possibly the best manager we think for this sort of situation? Short term, you know, you're not trying to get someone to build long term. You just want someone who can come in and somehow put together a weirdly talented but somehow bad group of players to try and win football matches or do you go no let's change the whole approach let's start thinking properly mid to long term even though it might mean risking another year or two at the level and then losing all of our cash it won't happen but I mean that's the thing like unless there's a change at Watford like they they did that last summer and it lasted two months like there is something whether it's an itchy trigger finger or whatever it is there's something in that club which will prevent there being a change in strategy unless there's a change in personnel making the decisions so so when we when we weigh them up ahead of next season like how the hell are, how are we well, going to even consider whether they're getting things right or whether I would they're just be amazed. going down the same path i'd be amazed if chris wilder is there next season um given that they are the most results driven club going and that he's got a short-term contract and they're not getting results you know in my mind it's much easier one of my biggest like and I've got quite a few <laughs> frustrations about like the vernacular used generally in covering football is one of the most annoying ones is um, this manager is out of their depth, right? Where being a manager isn't like being a player. Like you do not have like an inherent talent which has a ceiling. It is there is so much nuance in terms of what you're doing. There's so much development. Also, if you think about how much people change over time it is completely understandable and right that a manager age 35 will be a completely different manager age 45 and age 55 as their career develops as well. Jose Mourinho springs to mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you, you know, people saying that Graham Potter is out of his depth, and I'm sorry to go back to the Premier League again, but that is, you know, Graham Potter has managed to make a group of less talented players at Brighton into a better team than the team that he was managing with better players at Chelsea, right? So if you can elevate a side, a group of players, to a performance level that is this high, and then you can't do that with the worst group of players, you're not out of your depth. It's just something is wrong in terms of your management at the club, whether that's a cultural fit, whether it means that the players, for whatever reason, don't think you're the right manager for them. There can be a million different reasons why, but it's not a case of like he is incapable of managing world-class players to a, to a certain level. That's just not how it works. In my mind, the better way to, to look at things is to basically profile a club and probably try and align every management job with a similar club in terms of what they've already achieved. You know, we've seen Nathan Jones, for example, be incredibly successful at one club and then move to two different clubs of quite similar profiles, I guess, in a way, in terms of Stoke being, you know, a a, a bigger fan base, a, a bigger club in in air quotes with high expectations, and then Southampton, a club who um, might be a smaller fish within their pond, but also again bigger expectations, a higher um, quality of player at their disposal, and he and he completely bombed it at both. Like in my mind, there is a very clear identity of club that Nathan Jones will be successful in, and the two jobs he didn't work in weren't that. In the same way, I would argue that. 
I mean, who's another good example of someone who's, uh, I mean, I guess Potter is, is a similar case. Um, but with Wilder in Watford, in my mind, it's kind of perfect where he is now, where, as we discussed at the time of his appointment, he is somebody who has always gone into clubs and immediately instigated an improvement of fortunes before any you know any transfer window or anything was needed like he's had he's been an impact manager at the very base level the issues will start at Watford when he's fallen out or supposedly fallen out with Sheffield United and, and Borough over transfer policy and, and the lack of control he has over that so him being at Watford beyond the end of the season doesn't make any sense because there isn't really a club in the EFL where he will probably have less say over who, who he brings in. You know, he might be consulted, but he's not going to have the kind of power of transfers that he wants given the way that they recruit. You know, I don't think personally Rob Edwards was the person looking to bring in Ray Minaj in the summer. Like, it's just not the way that club operates. So I can see why he was appointed short term. I can't really work out why it isn't working. You know, there's could be a multitude of reasons for that, but I, I, I can't see why he would be unless there is change at the top level, why he would be an attractive option for them long-term now. I actually think Rob Edwards could have got quite a lot out of Vacun Bio. But alas, he's already been sent back. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, let's go here next. Cardiff 2, Swansea 3. A 99th minute winner scored by Ben Cabango, born in Cardiff. His brother Theo Cabango plays rugby for Cardiff. Neither Swansea or Cardiff, George, had ever done the double over one another in 97 years' worth of playing each other until last season when Swansea did it. Now it's a double-double, four in a row, this the most dramatic of the lot. Absolutely incredible scenes. And seeing the the limbs of the Swansea fans after Cabango's winner, um, especially given that nothing was on the line here for them apart from A, bragging rights, and B, the opportunity to possibly send Cardiff down to League One. Um, yeah, I mean, incredible scenes uh, just in terms of pure limbs. But They say a swan can break a man's arm, don't they? I think I saw a few Swans fans <laughs> break a few arms jumping down 10 rows there. Yeah, and it's it's been a really important time, this for Swansea, because um, the club as a whole... You know, we've spoken about it a lot. You know, you did your uh, monologue over the end of the January transfer window about their about their um, uh, their transfer policy, and then off the back of that, they went. Well, they had one win uh, and one draw, and all the rest defeats basically from February up until they um, beat Bristol City last time out. I think the back-to-back wins are important. I think the goals are important. I think in terms of keeping certain players at the club, specifically Joel Peru next season. Um, whether that's up or not, I don't know, but they, they have to improve. And for Russell Martin, in terms of keeping his job and keeping the fans on side, this is absolutely crucial. And there'll be massive frustration for, for Sabri Lamucci in Cardiff, who, like, all credit for them for fighting back from, you know, 2-0 down at home, just outside the relegation places, to your nearest rivals. It's not a very comfortable place to be. Um, and for them to turn that around, turn that around. sorry, Cabba getting another goal, he looks like a, a pretty good acquisition, I'd say. In, in January in terms of leading the line a brilliant goal from, from Philogene who's also a player that I, I really like um, and it looked like it was going to be a really important point and a point well deserved uh, only for Cabango to go up the other end and, and score uh, very late on you know it's a heartbreaking for Cardiff it comes a couple of days after the very unwelcome news that they have to go back to Rotherham and start the game afresh from 0-0 after the, the game is abandoned at 1-0 um, you know I mentioned it on the pod last week 
it feels to me, rightly or wrongly, like if, if Cardiff do get relegated this season and don't beat Rotherham in the process, then it's going to be a, a, a mess in my mind. Um, you know, we saw the, the legal action that was taken by by certain clubs around Derby. Like I, I, I think Cardiff fans are not going to take it particularly well or Cardiff as a football club. When you have a director at Cardiff after the decision was announced to replay the game from the start, tweeting a photo of the, the Rotherham pitch an hour after the game. I think that's that's fairly telling in terms of, of what the hierarchy at Cardiff are thinking about this. And um, again, as I said on the radio on Saturday, even though I can very much um, sympathise with their frustrations, I just get so bored of things that aren't football um, impacting the way that the league table ends up at the end of the season. More fun things from this game. Uh, I've created a new award. It's called Throw-In of the Season, and I've awarded it even before the end of the season to Harry Darling, uh, who got the assist for Joel Perot's first goal with just like absolutely brilliant. If, if that had been a pass, we'd have said it was an unbelievable pass. The fact that it was a throw shouldn't take away from that. Great vision, incredible execution um, to thread the ball through like two or three defenders into Perot, who'd made a clever run. Um, Cardiff defenders napping somewhat, Perot turning inside and then outside uh, and smashing it into the roof of the net with that lovely high, the, the high strike um, when you have when you take a near post shot. I think that's basically become in, in coaching terms, I think in data terms and in general terms, ever since it was popularised by Sergio Aguero, um, the the high finish into the roof of the net over the top of the goalkeeper, I think has basically become the sort of value play rather than trying to go low and hard across him, which is is what had been taught for generations. And Pirot showed it there. Uh, Harry Darling also playing at right back. Uh, and I don't hate that, you know. Like, yeah, I'm overreacting to a throw-in that he took and a few bits of in-possession stuff that I saw watching the extended highlights on the Swans YouTube channel. But given that I don't really rate Harry Darling as a defender at centre-back, particularly against very physical strikers such as Sorry Cabba. And given that I think that has been a problem at times for uh, Swansea and for Darling, uh, the fact that he is so good compared to most championship defenders, with ball at feet, comfortable in possession, happy to beta press, composure to do it, quality to play through, quality to play long passes probably quality to cross. I mean, he almost scored an absolute screamer here as well from like 25 yards early on in the game. I quite like Darling at right back, probably more than, you know, they've been playing Latibodier there. They've played Norton there. They haven't had a good right back. And in my head, I thought they needed someone super attacking or someone like Cyrus Christie, who was great for them last season. But actually, I'd quite like to see him continue with this experiment because I think it could be quite an interesting option uh, for them. Uh, What else? Liam Walsh, George. Remember Liam Walsh? We loved Liam Walsh in the nineteen twenty season playing for Coventry City. Nineteen twenty, I wasn't. I wasn't alive then. Hey, uh, he has started the last three games. Well. <laughs> started the last three games for Swansea. Uh, the last time he started three games in a row were the weeks before COVID hit in twenty twenty. So that is three years now. Um, it's been a horrible road for him with injuries, um, but he is back and he looks good and he's playing in quite fun like. I mean, he's such a Russell Martin player. Right? Kind of. Highly technical, yeah. comfortable with both feet, really composed, small. small. Martin, I think, <laughs> could be learning to really love him. And I think that's quite exciting. Uh, and I just wanted to also co-sign your line on Sorry Cabba because he looks an 
absolute handful, doesn't he? Sorry, not sorry. He's aerially, he's brilliant. He's not, I mean, he's not the, like the tallest of the strikers, but he's got an incredible leap on him. Looks really hungry in the box too. Um, and yeah, really strong start for him. Uh, okay, we need to crack on. Ah, so much to talk about. I don't want to crack on. I want to, I want to hear you talk about Stoke City, who beat Coventry City 4-0. 4-0 they beat Coventry City. And, I mean, they're, they're one of the best teams in the championship right now, uh, unequivocally. The, the, the question I have for you, George, isn't are they one of the best teams in the championship because they unequivocally are. My question really is how strong is that signal for next season then? Because teams do have strong 10 to 15 game stretches quite often where their results are good, even when their numbers are good. Um, it feels to me like it means a bit less when there's no real pressure on them. And yet they're giving me some serious entertainment. <laughs> I think it's definitely notable. And, you know, they're, they're very much on the short list already for next season. I mean, they're making it pretty obvious now. Um, you know, when you can score four and you create 3.5 XG, and you you know and that isn't a uh, a result in isolation um when you look at their um having scored five at Sunderland recently three at Swansea um you know they are just operating at an incredibly high level i guess the issue in terms of tracking it over to next season is the loan players where quite a lot of their players don't belong to them so Keanu Hoover who's been um one of the standout players in this run a, a goal scoring right back is on loan from Wolves uh, Will Smallbone um who has been one of the outstanding players in this run you would think will be a key part of Southampton's team if they're in the Championship next season and probably if in the Premier League um, as well. You know, that Dijon Sterling playing at left-back, you can't imagine he'll be there again next season too. Um, uh, Dwight Gale didn't start here, but he's had a, a pretty prevalent role to play in, in this run as well. So I guess that's the issue. I think, you know, you and I um, met a Stoke fan um I make it sound as if there's, you know, it's a rare occurrence. Um, but I, we met a Stoke fan when we interviewed Dean Smith uh, a couple of weeks ago at Walsall. Um, it was a representative from the LMA was was with him who was a Stoke fan, and this was just before the run. And I just said to him, I was like, you know, it must be so frustrating as a Stoke fan that it doesn't matter who the players are, it doesn't matter who the manager is, it's just always relentlessly incredibly disappointing. And he was like, yeah, yeah, basically. So I think. The importance here is maybe just an intangible one where it's like, okay, we can do this. We can get the fans back on side. We can be a really strong championship side because there's been little to no evidence of that. And there was a time under O'Neill where they looked like they were kind of okay and, and maybe might threaten. But this is the first time since Stoke got relegated, what, five seasons ago, where they have been one of, if not the best team, the most informed team in, in the league right now, the team who everyone else doesn't want to play against. And that is significant. It's significant in terms of Alex Neal getting by for next season. It's significant in terms of who they might be able to attract in the summer. You know, if you're a Premier League loan player now and you're looking at what's happening to Hoover and Smallbone, you're going to think, yes, this is a team and a manager that I want to play for. So um, it's not going to matter this season. And you are, of course, right. It's, it's easy to put in performances like this or it's easy to... To, to attack in the kind of carefree manner that they are when there's little to play for. Um, but certainly in terms of, if, if you think of Stoke's trajectory as a line over the last half a decade, this is the first time in a long time where there is a sharp uptick. Tyrese Campbell just continues to 
play incredibly well and he and he's that I know I use this phrase a fair bit I certainly have said it a few times about Aaron Collins this season but he's he's basically two attackers in one and I just think that is such an well is it an underrated skill set I don't know it's it's something that I absolutely adore the fact that he is such a goal threat because his finishing is so good uh, he takes up kind of awkward positions I would say for defenders to track and to to, to man mark um, he, he's got some great 1v1 finishing ability as he, as he showed here um, but he's also a sort of wide forward that creates chances a lot as well uh, who, who gets to the byline when, when defenders are standing on his left foot to make sure he doesn't cut in and shoot he's happy to go down the outside and, and get a yard or two of space to cut it back for his teammates and his numbers both in terms of goal scoring and his creative numbers in the last few weeks are absolutely brilliant and pleased for, for Alex Neal as well in the sense that you know uh, having made the move from Sunderland to Stoke, there's a lot of focus on on him, and uh, dare I say, a lot of people, you know, almost waiting and hoping for him to fail so that they could criticise the decision that he made. Um, probably without a lot of information uh, that he, or context that he he would probably want out there. But uh, just as someone who's been fairly strident in the view that he's about as good a manager as you get as you can get, I was rabbiting on about that a lot this time last year as we approached the League One playoffs and. Um, Feeling pleased that that's um, becoming you know clear once again. Uh, okay, Birmingham one, Blackburn nil. Not what Rovers had in mind really, as they looked to secure and cement their playoff spot. And it was their former loney Reda Kadra winning it with a nice strike uh, through bodies from the edge of the box. But I want to talk about the potential for another EFL wonder kid to come through Birmingham City. George, that's 18-year-old George Hall. He had a cracking game here. Uh, he was heavily involved in two Birmingham chances in the first half. Uh, this is a guy who started both England under-19 games last week, who's got that really recognisable now modern profile, I would say. The sort of player that that really can slot into a lot of styles and formations. He's played centre midfield quite a lot this season, you know, deeper for Birmingham as, a, as an eight. He's played off the left uh, of midfield, left wing for England under-19s, and he always seems to impact the game when he does that. He's played number 10 here for, for Birmingham, playing off Djukovic and, you know, running into channels and combining out wide and just generally um, being quite good and impacting the game. And I think it's really crucial for him and for Birmingham City that, that he stays fit for the next eight, nine games because he started five of the last seven. He started 10 games this season. I think he'll get more minutes. And when I think about Jude Bellingham, who has to be brought up when we're talking about Birmingham young midfielders, you know, Bellingham played loads on the left as well as in centre midfield for a lot of that season in Birmingham's team. It wasn't about him being in a set position and making that position his own. It was a question of his skill set, as we now recognise, being so important, well, so incredible, that really you just get him minutes in an, in whatever position that you think um, could work and helping him develop and helping him learn um, what's needed at senior level, uh, level. Because if you can find them the minutes, and not every, every manager can, and not every team is in a position that Birmingham are in where the, the pressure's off for the next couple of months, but the benefit can be absolutely mega uh, for the club and for the player as well. So he's really exciting. Classically in the, in the Blues Academy mould, I'd say, fearless on and off the ball, um, desire to carry it, not just play safe all the time and, and very, very hard working off it. I think we both kind of hope that he'll maybe sign a new deal at Birmingham, give them that, you know, for supporting him in, in the early part of his journey and then smashing next season before a, an expected move to the Premier League. He has been linked with Leeds quite heavily. 
it'd be a blow to see him go somewhere and, and be stuck in PL2 next season. So hopefully that won't be the outcome. But uh, really, really exciting talent and, and had a good game here. You think also, if, if it is Leeds, their recent <clears throat> history or recent record of learning out players at the FL is quite good. And especially after he'd already played first team football, you'd hope that that might be the case. What could it actually mm. be at Birmingham next season? Yes, true. Uh, the relegation battle, George, all of a sudden looks quite spicy. After those back-to-back Huddersfield wins, we now look. We are now looking at the table with Wigan having been deducted three points on 34 at the bottom, Blackpool on 35 in 23rd, Huddersfield four above them on 39, level on points with Cardiff in 21st, although Cardiff have a game in hand, as do Rotherham, who are two points above Cardiff and Huddersfield, QPR one point above them, uh, and then Reading up on 46 points, currently seven points above the relegation zone, but Paul Ince still seemingly adamant that a points deduction is, in his words, imminent. That's what he said at the end of last week. Well, it wasn't imminent because it hasn't yet been imposed, if it's going to be, but that's another big part of this conversation at George Blackpool. Well, they went to Preston and lost 3-1. QPR lost 1-0 to Wigan. All of a sudden, it's on. It, yeah, it definitely is on. Um, and until we know what's happening with Reading, it's it's quite hard to kind of make, make sense of as it stands now. Um, for Wigan, massive frustration, of course, after their points deduction. That should have been... An incredibly important three points. It still might be, but it's it's pretty hard to see a way out for them. Um, for Blackpool, I think we just have to get the felt tip out and draw a big line across that six-one win win over QPR because the two performances since have been as abject as the performances that came prior to that. And I think the reason why you have to get the felt tip out and do that is because QPR right now are the worst team in the league by some margin. Um, and that is, you know, when you consider how poor Blackpool are and the the pasting they gave them, it is impossible for me right now to see why QPR will will pick up the points needed to hold off Huddersfield, who are operating at a much much higher level. Um, the one win that Gareth Ainsworth got as QPR manager was against Watford. At the time, it looked pretty impressive. But look at what's happened to Watford in the two or three games since then, where they are also incredibly poor and have to rank as one of the worst teams in the division right now. Um, you know, we're seeing the Ainsworth style starting to... Well, I mean, we're seeing a very direct style from, from QPR now. As we've spoken about so many times, they recruited to play possession-based style and they are playing a completely different type now and it's not working at all you know they went 1-0 down after five minutes away at the team bottom of the championship and managed to have eight shots in the whole game amassing an xg of about 0.5 like they are an abject attacking side right now a team who cannot keep a clean sheet you know I'm I'm a huge Gareth Ainsworth fan and I think long term he would be a manager who would get you know, once he had his players in the door who had who were buying into his methods and had the physical capabilities of doing what he wanted, it would be effective. Um, I'm frustrated with myself for not seeing this coming because now it just looks like a total clash of styles and cultures at the club. Um, I, I, you know, they were, were so poor at Wigan and have been so poor in every game. I can't really see. In fairness, I couldn't see why Huddersfield would turn around either and things can change and all it takes is a moment or or just a tweak or a player coming in and and doing well to to instigate a change. But right now, um, 
you know, I don't think any bookies have relegation prices out at the moment because um, because of the Reading stuff. Like, no one knows what's happening there. But if Reading aren't to be deducted points, I, I almost think QPR are, are now more likely than not to get relegated, even though I, I have a feeling that the odds wouldn't reflect that. Wigan, having been deducted those three points, winning them straight back here, they have a quite a peculiar record under Sean Maloney where they've played 11 games They've only won two. This is just their second win. They've only lost three. They've drawn six of them. They're conceding less than a goal a game. So defensively, you know, they really are tight and much tighter than before, but they've only scored seven in 11. And that was one of the knocks on Maloney at his spell with Hibs. I do feel a little bit bad about a manager that has to walk into a relegation battle in like February or whatever it was. I don't necessarily think it's fair to expect suddenly a team that's got a poor squad and hasn't scored many goals anyway to suddenly be looking really good going forward. So I'm kind of minded to to praise Sean Maloney actually for, for his spell at Wigan so far. And, and this win gives them a shot, a long shot, but a shot nonetheless. QPR have conceded in the last three games in the third minute against Blackpool, in the third minute against Birmingham, and the sixth minute here. Uh, and as for Preston, those goals were just beautiful, weren't they? They didn't even dominate this game. It was actually a bit closer than the, than the score reflected, I think. But Brad Potts, who only seems to score good goals. And it's quite weird because, with all due respect... Respect? <laughs> respectfully, right, to Brad Potts. <laughs> he's, he doesn't have the profile of a player that is normally a scorer of great goals. Do you know what I mean? Like He's kind of... He's pretty much sustained an impressive championship career over the last few years because of what his managers appreciate about him physically, the stamina, the ability to get up and down, the athleticism, you know, the fact that he used to be a centre mid and he's more or less been shunted out to the right wing, uh, wing back role now kind of speaks to that. And yet, because he's incredible, his technique with long shots is sometimes incredible and sometimes terrible. It None of it makes sense, but I bloody love it. Uh, ben Whiteman with a nice free kick and then mm, Cannon. <laughs> he's very good at football that I was such a cool finish oh my yeah. god they're um, not a million miles away from the playoffs you know North End just, just on pots quickly because I find I went to Oxford Carlisle I mean it must have been quite a long time ago now <laughs> but Brad Potts played centre field for them and I just can't wrap my head around how it's the same person where he was like diminutive small technical small. stood out yeah, like not at all. I don't understand. So you weren't, maybe you were drunk. No, I was with my dad. Um, <laughs> and I... Uh, Have you yeah, never been drunk with your dad? Not at the football. Great question. Um, I mean, he was at my own wedding, but you remember I, I kept it together pretty well. You were great at your wedding. Don't beat yourself up. You thought you were perfect. Made my brother's wedding and my sister's weddings. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was... Yeah, I just can't really believe it's the same guy. But anyway, that's for another... Uh, is that for another time? Probably not. doesn't really need to be spoken about again. Quick one. Yeah. Incredible subheader of his Wikipedia page, social media issue. Some <laughs> years before he joined Preston North End, <gasps> he and his friends filmed a video of him defecating on a car with the video resurfacing online in oh, June 2021. No. Potts apologised for having done so, and Preston stated they would deal with it internally. I just, I'm just trying to work out what... Anyway, that's disgusting. Played for England under nineteens when he was at Carlisle. Yeah, yeah, bizarre. Like I'm, I'm looking at a photo of him playing for for, for Carlisle now, and he looks 
I mean, you can't really see if he's small or not. He's kind of here. He is towering over Keith Curl, so he can't be that small. But yeah, Cannon, Cannon looks to me to be, he's going to be hot property. Um, although you have to wonder if, I mean, it's another strange one where um, Everton's striker striker issues have been um, very obvious over the last 18 months. And Ellis Sims and Tom Cannon both look quite good. And you have to wonder why they haven't had more of a, more of a chance for Sims now, obviously now getting some game time. Um, but yeah, a brilliant pickup from them. And another one where, like, the Swansea result, um, although I guess, you know, Preston will still hope they can force their way in. But, um, you know, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but still, a, you know, for, for a fan base to um, play a decent part in probably relegating their rivals has got to always be sweet. Three draws to finish us off. Bristol Rovers won, Reading won. Uh, again, Reading just in a bit of a holding pattern here. Are they probably safe because of the points they picked up earlier on in the season or are they absolutely not safe because of a points deduction that could threaten to wipe out six of those points we don't really know I guess this point therefore is is pretty valuable away at Bristol City from behind as well Uh, Tommy Conway scoring for Bristol City uh, 12 games out for him uh, with injury straight back in with a goal Uh, he hadn't scored for a few before then so good to see him back and sharp and then Reading's equaliser was a deep deep set piece Launched into the box, Andy Carroll gets the header on because that's what he does very well. And Lucas Schwau was well placed to flick it in. Uh, we also had West Brom nil, Millwall nil. I think big match preview on our YouTube channel might be somewhat cursed. Uh, the last two games have both been nil, nil. But that, you have to say, is a fantastic point for Millwall just in terms of defending their honour or rather their playoff spot. Uh, and, and West Brom uh, frustrated at home, but again, not conceding. So, what did we say? Not a single open play goal conceded in 11 home games now for West Brom. Uh, and Hull City nil, Rotherham nil was also a match that happened. Um, Rotherham getting a point away from home seems notable given how poor their away form has been all season. Uh, in League One, George, there were only 10 games due to the Papa John's Trophy final. And Bolton won it 4-0 against Plymouth Argyle. So huge congrats to Bolton Wanderers, their manager Ian Everett, and the owner, Sharon Britton, seem to have a really good thing going. And they're helping this football club come back from its knees, uh, which should be applauded. Uh, it's their first time at Wembley since they lost 5-0 in the FA Cup semi to Stoke in 2011, George. So that was a pleasing day for Bolton and their fans. The big question is basically, how much will that cup final and the extent to which Bolton thumped title contenders, Plymouth Argyle, how much will that impact them for the rest of the season? I think this is where you get into the realms of um, taking a conclusion and then applying uh, an explanation for it, which doesn't necessarily ring true. You know, And I'm, a lot of amateur psychology as well. Exactly. <laughs> Not our strongest point. No. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is that, um, in my mind, one of the most impressive things about... Plymouth Argyle this season has been their resilience. So if we look over the course of their campaign so far this season, they were beaten 5-1 by Charlton uh, in midweek in August and they won the next game on the Saturday 3-0 away at uh, Forest Green and then beat Bolton 2-0 after that. They were beaten 5-1 by Grimsby in the FA Cup and then went unbeaten in their three games after that. Um, They were beaten uh, 1-0 by Sheffield Wednesday in February beat Pompey 3-1 in the game after that, beaten 5-2 by Posh in the league, were beaten, sorry, then beat Charlton 2-0 in Derby 2-1 in the games after that. Like, 
they were beaten three 0 by Barnsley just the other day, and then followed that up with a two 0 win over Forest Green. You know they're they're not a team. They are certainly a team who put in the odd really bad performance, which isn't something you normally say about teams who are challenging towards the top end. But there's a resilience there, and you know, putting my own amateur psychologist hat on, um, having experience losing heavily and then putting it um, behind them will um, help them. And I'm sure that if they go and and lose. Um, who have they got next? Uh, Morecambe away. I mean, it's a pretty good game, you'd think, to, to bounce back from. But if they go and lose to Morecambe and Lincoln in the next two games, everyone else will point back to the 4-0 loss as being the reason why, when, you know, is that actually a, a big case? I think the, the obvious thing to say is for Bolton, it's massive. Um, especially given they came into the game off the back of four without a win, um, I think, to, to score four goals, to, to beat the team top of the table, Um there's no there's no negative here I don't think and also if they do end up in the playoff final at Wembley um, to have that experience of having gone there and won just a few weeks before will we'll, we'll we'll serve them well Well Argyle certainly were top of the table pre-weekend in League One but having not played it's now Sheffield Wednesday but just but it's off the back of a draw at home with Lincoln uh, it's five games without a win for a Sheffield Wednesday side that went on a 23-game unbeaten run up until four games ago. Um, They've played so many games recently, it's hard to remember the specifics of all of them, George. But since we last spoke, after their defeat to Forest Green, they've drawn away at Cheltenham, coming back late uh, to equalise there. Uh, and they've now drawn at home to Lincoln City. Now, we're both uh, mates with a Sheffield Wednesday fan called Ben, and I saw him the Saturday before the Forest Green game, right? So after they'd lost to Barnsley uh, and that had followed a draw with Bolton. And I said to Ben, don't you worry about this, mate. You know, the Barnsley result was a bit of a freak result, but you're clearly an unbelievable team. The performance levels look super repeatable. Everyone seems to be singing off the same hymn sheet with Darren Moore, the vicar. And basically, you're playing the worst team in League One, and you're going to absolutely batter them. So just chill, man. Have a good, you know, have a good day. <laughs> chill, man. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Since then, lose to Forest Green, draw with Cheltenham, draw with Lincoln. You saw him on Saturday night after those results. What did you say to Ben? I said I'm pretty worried about you, if I'm honest. Um, and he was like, "Yeah, your mate told me we were going to be fine." Um, so chill, man. Have a nice day. <laughs> I was like, you're rubbish, have a terrible day. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not playing well. There's no getting away from that. Um, th- this isn't a, uh, a, a an unlucky run of results where they're playing okay and they're not getting the, the rub of the green. They are quite visibly wobbling um, at the moment. I, th- I thought when they were went 1-0 up against Lincoln, we'd see them kill the game. Um, I mean, it's... it's Obviously, I have to point out here that once Lincoln equalised, Lincoln offered very little, and Wednesday were, were well on top. Um, with uh, and, and also the fact that it was a goalkeeper error from Stockdale um, spilling the ball, and then nearly doing it again with Lincoln's only other shot in the whole game. Um, but Rushworth was the you know the busier of the two keepers, and quite clearly the better of the two keepers on the day as well. Um, and they travelled to Oxford next on Friday, which on the face of it looks like another you know you think Forest Green away. Great game to get back to winning ways. No. Cheltenham away. Great game to get back to winning ways. No. Lincoln at home. Surely a good way to get back to winning ways. Hasn't been the case. They play Oxford, who have got three points from the last possible 36. Surely that is a possible, um, a good way to get back to winning ways. But Oxford have been, or well, certainly on Saturday, a very different side under Liam Manning, where you can, 
you know, it was a, a nil-nil draw at Peterborough. And it was a really nondescript, really boring nil-nil draw where neither team really created much of a note whatsoever, apart from Marcus Brown scoring a very late disallowed goal. Uh, Oxford created little. Bosch had a lot of shots, but nothing really of note. Johnson Clark Harris had no had a bicycle kick that just went wide. Um, but I watched the game and it was very clear that Liam Manning... It, it, often when, when we think about Manning's MK Dons team, we think about their amazing attacking play, about Scott Twine's numbers and the rest of it. They were defensively incredibly solid. They conceded very few goals in that season. And I think Sheffield Wednesday going to Oxford are going to Oxford at a pretty bad time where this is his first home game. Certainly got buy-in from the players, certainly got buy-in from the fans after that performance on Saturday and that point. And they will make it very difficult for them, I'm sure, in terms of their defensive shape. I expect it to be a very different looking Oxford side. He'll probably sit off and let Wednesday have the ball quite a lot. He'll be very resolute in terms of what they're doing, playing with a proper flat back four and a lot of energy in midfield. And, um, you know, you might think this is biased, but I think on the betting show, I've shown my my um, happiness to get against Oxford at set opportunities. I don't think Wednesday will come away from the game on Friday with three points unless they are a lot better than they have been um, in the last couple of weeks. You did say that this time last week ahead of their game against Cheltenham and you were right, they did not beat Cheltenham. Uh, quick word for Lincoln City because they are the most confusing team of the 72. Uh, why do I say that? Well, their record against the quote-unquote big boys of this division is it, it makes no sense for a team that are a bottom half team um in a division where the the four top teams are all two ppg and above and they're just setting ridiculous standards uh it it really is confusing that lincoln have played six games against the top four uh, they haven't lost a single one of them they beat ipswich away they beat barnsley away they've drawn at hillsborough they've drawn at home to sheffield to plymouth and to uh, ipswich town as well the amount of one ones they've had this season is actually a bit freaky. It's a bit like paranormal, the amount of one-ones that Lincoln have had. So maybe something to be wary of. Um, but congratulations, because it's another famous away effort from them uh, and an impressive point. Now, you've mentioned posh Oxford, nil-nil, a good bit of defensive shape and uh, and resilience from Oxford. Derby played Ipswich. This was the big fixture of the weekend on paper. It was 2-0 to Ipswich. What did it look like? Yeah, it was it was another really good Ipswich performance. Um, they're the informed team in, in League One by quite some way at the moment, and the only thing that you could really hold against them in terms of their bid for automatic promotion is that the fixture list isn't particularly kind to them. But when you go to Derby, albeit a Derby side that aren't in great form themselves, but you ease clear and win the game two nil. Um, Connor Chaplin scoring a a very very good counter attacking first goal without you know it's one of those where the ball goes from back to front in about six touches and into the back of the net. Um, and then uh, George Hurst's second goal. McGoldrick had a decent opportunity in between the two um, with a header that went into the side netting. Um, but realistically, they didn't threaten too much. And Ipswich just did what they always do, where they you know, they created the better chance in the game. The opposition couldn't really do much about it. They seemed to have um, sorted out their incredible penchant for throwing away points in weird and wonderful ways. That is now seven wins in a row, eight clean sheets in a row favourites now for the title in League One and I think it would be mad to argue otherwise Since they went 2-0 down to Sheffield Wednesday a game in which they came back to draw 2-2 Ipswich have scored 20 goals without reply in League One that's not normal for a football team in a professional division it's absolutely incredible and thank you to Joe Fares 
uh, for that stat. And well done, Joe, on your half marathon. Great effort. Uh, Barnsley 5, Morecambe nil. George, just an absolute battering from the fourth minute when Barnsley's first shot was parried into the path of Devante Cole, who mopped up to the 94th minute when Bobby Thomas uh, headed home. A good response from Barnsley after they lost in midweek to Exeter. Um, Keep the pressure on. They're in ridiculous form. I mean, you picked Barnsley goals heavily on the betting show, so you can't have been surprised about this. No, and I do think with Wednesday wobbling and, um, you know, even though Plymouth Argyle haven't shown many signs of, of letting up, um, and their fixture just being very easy, you know, there is always maybe the feeling that a bad run at some stage could be around the corner. Um, I don't think Barnsley are going to chase our Ipswich, but if they continue to win, there, there might be some pieces to pick up in terms of the top two. Um, I think that the, the thing to probably mention here is is Morecambe. It's another poor result at the end of a week where the players weren't paid uh, and then were paid late after an injection of um, cash from Saab Capital. Yeah, I'm not going to really get into um, into this too much. If anyone's interested in in Saab Capital um, at Ugly Game, which is Martin Calladine has been investigating Saab Capital quite a lot over the last couple of months, and um, you know, I think more fans are stuck between a rock and a hard place here, where there's obviously whenever there's new possible uh, an injection of capital, it's always exciting for fans, especially if the club is in a position where they can't pay their players on time. Um, but Martin and a few others of journalists have flagged some things that are, are pretty concerning in terms of uh, of the you know of sub capital and who they are. So yeah, I mean if if it comes to it, then I guess more more when we have it. But uh, yeah, worrying times on and off the pitch maybe for for Morecambe. How are Wickham still only two points away from the playoffs, George? They have only won one of their last five. They winless in three. They drew at home to MK Dons over the weekend and I was ready to look at the table and think wow these drop points are you know they are not the sort of points return that you need if you're going to um, punch your way into the playoffs and yet they're still very much in touching distance uh, I guess more credit should go to MK Dons is their first point this season against a team currently in the top eight their first point <laughs> against a team currently in the top eight and I think that demonstrates uh, you know if I'm stretching here that the new version of themselves that we've seen uh, develop over the last month or so is indeed a huge improvement on what we saw for the first five months of the season. Um, good point away from home. John Lecco with the equaliser there. Uh, Portsmouth 1, Forest Green 0. You cannot let Owen Dale score a back post header over the top of you as a professional football defender. I'm afraid I like Udoka Godwin Malif a lot. I think he's been a quality player for Forest Green Rovers, but given he's someone who often plays at centre-back and in this game he was playing at right-back and he basically got dunked on by a tiny winger. Uh, not very impressive. And unfortunately, Forest Green were not able to recreate that performance level that they put up against Sheffield Wednesday. Portsmouth winning this one fairly comfortably. You want to tell me about Charlton 6, Shrewsbury nil, George? Whoa. What? Yeah, this was really quite good from Charlton. Up against the Shrewsbury side who... Steve Cottrell can't have had many sides that have conceded six before in his career. And there's a reason for that. They are good at what they do. Uh, but Charlton were able to just steamroll them, really, in terms of the uh, the, the consistent pressure that they had. Um, 17 shots in the game, 11 on target and six goals. And we have to speak about, you know, one of the most impressive first loans. You know, we've spoken about him a fair bit in Jezrin Ran- Riaksaki, Um 
it was reported in the press in the summer that he was having to choose between Charlton and Oxford, which, as you can imagine, I've uh, taken, um, you know, I've, I've forgotten a long time ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Raktaki's goal, it's almost as sexy as Tom Cannon's finish, probably more so um, in terms of the, the run itself. And then just this outrageous, nonchalant, kind of left-footed, outside of the left-foot poked finish, um, which you don't see very often. Um, a unbelievable bit of uh, a, a bit of play from him, and you know just the disdain at which you know he held the Shrewsbury backline and keeper in order to pull that off was was so impressive. Um, you know there was lots to like about them all game. Um, Lieben scoring, getting on the score sheet again, a brilliant Scott Fraser goal as well. Uh, maybe the one that would catch the eye the most in terms of, of pure aesthetics. Um, yeah, after a difficult spell during a, a tough run of games where certain idiots were, were doubting Charlton and the positivity around the club at the moment. Um, since Dean Holden signed that new contract, they've been going from strength to strength. And they're another team, I mean, it's not quite Stoke, um, but they're another team who, you know, looking ahead to next season, there are still obviously issues in terms of, of, of the long-term future of the club and the ownership of the club and, and especially the fact that, the, you know, the training ground and the and the stadium is still owned by De Chatelet. Um But certainly on the pitch, it feels like things are, are definitely developing. It will not hurt that the fans could and hopefully will finish the season supportive of a manager uh, heading into the summer. But as you say, the amount of uncertainty around the ownership gives me a lot of pause for thought when I'm thinking about getting carried away about Charlton for next season because the potential for that to undermine recruitment, undermine Holden is, is pretty considerable um, and even aside from that, mate, I think I think Raksaki's so good that replacing Raksaki and trying to find a player or a group of players who can come close to providing the quality that he does, the, the threat that he poses the opposition and and the final product as well. Possibly one of the hardest recruitment jobs in League One this summer. Uh, Port Vale nil, Cambridge 2. Okay. Yeah, okay, Cambridge. There you go. We wanted to see something from you. We wanted to see a pulse, and I think we have done here. Now, Vale um, are maybe looking a little bit beachy, and fair enough. They've earned that. Cambridge made the most of it with a, a two quick goals in the second half. Sam Smith's first goal for 12, uh, and... They're now, own well, I say only, it's quite a lot. They are five points from safety. So for now, the gauntlet is laid down to Cambridge. Uh, in the last, on the last four occasions that Cambridge have won a League One game before this, they've waited like five, six, seven games until their next win. So they haven't been able to get any sort of run together. It's just been one-offs. So the, the gauntlet is laid down. Is this a one-off, Cambridge? Can you go and beat Fleetwood on Friday? They're another tricky team, but they're a team who should have lower motivation than you right now. So go and beat them uh, and then we can talk again because Cambridge, as we kept saying, whenever we talked about how bad they were and how poor their results were and how terrible it all looked, they've never been miles away from survival. And as you always tell me, George, being at five points away, even at this stage of the season, down the bottom, well, it's not that big a gap because wins mean more. Uh, and Fleetwood 2, extra 2. This was a huge one in the battle for 11th. For no one. Yes, mate, the battle for it. Come on. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. It's within our interest to create more hype points, mm. thus getting more excitement from the listeners, uh, improving our own product, and just having more fun, mate. Come on. I love fun. Huge in the battle for 11th this game, Fleetwood 2, Exeter 2. And <laughs> you know what, George? It basically turned into the battle of big brands, right? Because Marriott checked in, 
for Fleetwood. And then ba-da-da-da-da, who scored Exeter's equaliser? I can't remember. McDonald. Ah, uh, yeah. He's, he's loving, loving it. it. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, dear. Um, Cheltenham nil, <laughs> Burton nil. also is a match that happened. Cheltenham have drawn five of their 20 home games, nil-nil, which is not acceptable. Um, League two. Wow. Sponsored by late, 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 late goals this week. I think there were three deep into injury time. We also had the th- the, the three uh, big games at the top, all of the top six playing against each other in some manner. Uh, one of them was a 1-0 win and two of them were one-all draws. Orient, George, the only team in the top six at the start of the weekend to win. They have got, what is it, one foot in League One and one hand on the trophy or two hands in the trophy and one foot in League One. Something like that. One of those analogies. Yeah, I mean, this was a an incredibly important win for Orient, knowing that at least one of Northampton and Stevenage would drop points. It turned out to be both. Um, and take on a Carlisle side who was still a team who, if they had beaten Orient on the day, could have could have been in there to, to chase them down as well. Um, you know, it wasn't... They, they were the better team. I think it's important to say that. I think Carlisle looked to me to be a, a team who are floundering a bit, who seem to have lost their path. That's four games now without a goal. Um, and there's no denying that there was a, a big slice of luck for Orient in terms of the goal that they did score with um, a John Mellish own goal. Charlie Kelman was then sent off for an unbelievably stupid second yellow. I'm not really sure what he was doing going in for a, a, a challenge like that in the middle of the park, already on a yellow. And um, Omar Beckles with an important goal line um, clearance, although Mellish, I think, will like to have that one back. Where I think it was, was it Mellish who scored the own goal? Mellish who was fouled for the sending off and Mellish who missed that chance late on. Yes. Uh, that's quite fun. <laughs> where he rounded Vigaru and the goal was kind of gaping and he didn't really get the right amount of purchase on the on the shot where it kind of it might even not really even been going in by the time Beckles got there. Um so yeah, I mean it, it looks now like or I mean of all the teams in the EFL um who had good weekends, you can't really think of, of one better than Orient for whom um they were the only team within that four to win and as you say they are marching their way to League One. Seven points clear of second, fourteen points clear of fourth orient could certainly be promoted this weekend if things go their way Um, but we now have nine teams right between second and tenth separated by 12 points which is a bit of fun with uh six seven eight games to go uh in both of the other big games george it kind of felt like maybe this is hindsight speaking the most important thing was not to lose and and that's what Northampton and Stevenage and Stockport and Salford all achieved with their one all draws that the cobbler Stevenage game you'd framed as whoever wins this will have one foot in league 1 uh, in the end uh, honors even uh, a tale of two halves as it was described in a Sunday scouting report and also a tale of one of my favorite goals of the season yes the anyone who doesn't look at not the top content um do because the video of Jamie Reed's goal, like that is a, a clear case of like, you see it live and you're like, oh, nice turn, nice finish, cool. And then you see that angle and you see the spin and the finish and the, the hitting both posts before spinning in. It is a far, far better and more visually pleasurable experience to watch it in that that alternative angle um, than the original one. Uh, a brilliant goal. And, and I do think, you know, for... For Northampton, they'll feel frustrated they couldn't get two goals ahead in the first half where they were, were well on top. Um, but I think for Stevenage, 
after a really difficult few weeks, um, and especially where they've been poor against better opposition, I think to um, rally the way they did in the second half, to perform much better, to, to get the goal, to come away with a point, it's going to be massive for them going forward for the rest of the season. You know, I, I speak about Carlisle floundering. I think Stevenage could have been put in that bracket as well had they come away from this uh, being beaten, uh, which looked like it was going to be the case for the majority of the first half. So, um, you know, the race is still on, and um, Stevenage, you know. Pff, I, th- I think pretty both teams basically come out of this with a fair amount of credit, although Northampton will be the ones who feel like it's it's two mm. points dropped rather than a point gained. Yeah, and Stockbud's... Stockbud? <laughs> What's happened there? It's too early for me to be mixing team names up. Normally that comes around the one twenty-five minute, not the one one five minute. Um, Stockport won, Salford won. Brilliant assist from Kyle Noyle carrying the ball and crossing for Connor Evans to put Stockport ahead. Then a big moment when Paddy Madden had a great opportunity that he struck against the post in the second half. Salford City equalising the dream connection from Callum Hendry. He's been a name on our lips a lot in the last few weeks for good and bad reasons. What a hit, Callum Hendry. The the feeling... Unbelievable. I love it. Closing my eyes now. The, The dream trajectory, the dream dip... I bet he didn't even feel the connection. And that's when you know you've caught it perfectly. It was so good. The game in general, I'd framed this one as unstoppable force. Uh, Salford City with all them goals. And immovable object, Stockport County with all them clean sheets. And you know what? I think Stockport's immovableness was probably the stronger of the two duelers. Great work. Um, very few shots in this game. Not a huge amount of goal mouth action, really. Um, but a one all draw for Stockport. Well, they've got three home games against bottom eight teams still to come. They, they, you'd expect them to win those games. They will be hugely heavy favourites to do so. They're also away at Carlisle, away at Orient, away at Sutton and Jill. So their away games, very, very difficult. Just quickly, so I want to just ask you something. I want to ask you something for once about Salford. It kind of dawned on me that if Salford don't go up, I would assume that both Callum Hendry and Elliot Watt will be pretty high on the shopping lists of certain League One and possibly even, even championship clubs next season in the summer. But it's weird for a club who have spent a lot of money and, uh, you know, have recruited fairly well. I can't really think of a single Salford player yet of that profile who's been kind of sold on. And I'm intrigued, given the ambition of the board and the amount of money behind them, are they going to be a club who are willing to engage with League One and, and championship clubs for their talent? Or could we see... Like, do you reckon it might not be an option for those players to move on, especially after just one season? Yes, I think more of the latter, personally. Uh, I think. I mean, Brandon Thomas Sante is the obvious one who has gone. Yeah. Um, and that we know. But I even, when you say even he probably gave them six to 12 months more than a lot of League Two teams would have got from a similar player with a similar output. I, I, re- I do think that Salford's financial power and the. the although I don't know the terms that they're able to offer players, just my perception uh, of of kind of overseeing the two leagues, if you like. I'm not sure there are many League One clubs who can pay the transfer fees, first and foremost, that are necessary to interest Salford in letting go of players. Bear in mind, they lay down a lot to get these players in in the first place, and there aren't loads of them available to Salford in League Two. There aren't loads of players like... Elliot Watt and like Callum Hendry and we know they've spent quite a lot on players that haven't provided them the sort of output that Hendry and Watt 
will provide them. So my perception of them, of the ownership group and of their sort of financial muscle is that it's almost, it's just incredibly unlikely compared to any other League Two team, possibly not including Stockport themselves, who for a League One team to, to impact Salford in the transfer market in terms of making them an offer that they can't refuse and also... Well, I suppose at that point, then, you know, you, you would back the players to show ambition to move maybe to the top of League One if necessary. But it's, it's a very fair question. And I still think that Hendry's below average goal output would probably put off most top League One teams, even though I could see him having a 30 goal a season, 30 goal season next season if he does stay. So, uh, yes, very interesting. Tell me about Bradford 3, Grimsby 2. When I saw Grimsby were 2 on up, I'd already written my bit for the Monday pod about Bradford and just being a bit wet at home and just not really getting it done, but they did. Yeah, it felt like a, a very un-Bradford response, this. You know, so many times we've seen them disappoint in games where they should maybe win. This was an opportunity for them with teams above them playing against each other to, you know, if they won this game, they were going to close the gap. As it turned out, it was pretty significant given Carlisle lost and then the other two teams drew. Uh, and they're very much still in this automatic promotion race. Um, and, you know, to go one up and then concede twice was quite Bradford this season. Um, to score twice late, albeit with Andy Cook getting the winner, uh, not so much. So it feels like a pretty significant win this for them. Um, their um, home form over the course of the season against poor opposition has been very, very good. Generally, their form against poor opposition is uh, has been superb all season. If you take teams from 10th and below, so basically um, Sutton downwards, they've only lost two games all season against those teams. Um, but their six defe- other defeats this season have come against teams towards the, towards the top end. I mean, the good news for them is that their fixtures are fairly favourable in the short term. They go to, Cr- to Crawley next, they host Sutton, they go to Rochdale after that, and then they go to, to Swindon and then host Gillingham. So if they're true to form and they continue making light work of those teams towards the bottom end, then they should, you know, when it comes to be a bit trickier, going to Northampton and then finally uh, hosting Orient on final day, um, they might be within that top three area. And um, I guess psychologically, coming back from 2-1 down to win that game late on will be a big boost to them as well. Great movement and finish from Andy Kirk. Shock horror, what form he is in, 23rd of the season. And... Really fun this. I, I I thought again to myself when I saw Andy Cook scoring, hold on, I think he played for Grimsby, didn't he? So that's a goal against his former club. And then I was like, hold on. I feel like I think that every single week. So turns out Andy <laughs> Cook, a quarter of League Two teams are former clubs of Andy Cook, six of the of the other 23. And he has scored against five of the six this season. He's scored against Tranmere, wow, cool. against Grimsby, against Mansfield, against Walsall, and against Barrow. He only didn't score against Carlisle, uh, which is his boyhood club, which I think is a, a lovely touch and just you know shows the measure of the man. Uh, George, Mansfield four, Crawley one. Could have been a banana skin. Wasn't. Just absolute rampancy. Is that a word? The, no. Is that the state of being rampant? Rampancy. You tell me. Yeah, I mean, this was pretty pretty easy for, for Mansfield. I got this very wrong on the betting show by, by having them as my lay. <laughs> Rampmanship. Yeah. Could be. They they went ahead after five minutes to Ollie Clark. Um, often when that happens, things can go one of two ways. Either it lets your position back in or you just turn the screw. And they very much were screw turning um, this time. You know, after after a, a few weeks where it felt like Mansfield and Bradford were the big losers in this battle for the playoffs um 
as can often be the case, things you know turn back for them um, and we're kind of, kind of back where we were 10, 10 days ago. Great hassle shown by Barrow beating Jills 2-1 in injury time. Robbie Gotts with a really good first touch. He got a quick shot off, took a deflection, flew into the corner past Glenn Morris. Felt a bit bad for Glenn Morris here, George. The first goal was a Morris own goal. And it was it was one of those where it's just a reminder that life sometimes doesn't reward the work that you put in. Because Morris made a great save from an initial shot. Then there was a rebound shot, which was flying in. Max Ema, incredible goal line clearance. But he kicked it back onto Morris's back and into the goal. Morris' own goal. 1-0 Barrow. Uh, Jills did get back into it eventually, a header from a corner. Connor Masterson would tend to play. Uh, but Gotts' finish means that Barrow... They're there, aren't they? They're 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 there. They're sort of like, where are they? They're there. There they are. I'm pointing yeah. at them. Shame this isn't a visual <laughs> platform. Five points off the playoffs is what I mean. Even with a minus two goal difference, which very much stands out as not being as good as the teams around them. But they're they are there. Where? <laughs> they're there. <laughs> yeah. They're there. Uh, they're there. Sutton less there now. Uh, they drew one all with Walsall there. Uh, they're winless in four Sutton, just the three points in those four games. And it was a damaging, damaging error, I'm afraid, from their goalkeeper, Rose, in the 95th minute. Yes, it lost me my nap, but also it's very damaging for Sutton's playoff credentials. Now, Matt Gray, all class in his post-match because no getting away from it. It was a, it was a poor mistake from the goalkeeper that allowed the opposition to score that allowed Sutton to drop two points they probably did deserve all three really um, on the balance of play as the away team um, but Matt Gray very clear Rose has been brilliant for us this season he's won us more points than he's lost so we're not going to overreact when he uh, makes a mistake because that's what goalkeepers do absolutely loved it I would also suggest once you've watched that and appreciated the the man that Matt Gray is and the, the bond that he clearly has with his players which in my eyes very clearly helps him to get more out of them rather than being critical on a whim after a, a mistake which has cost them uh, which could cause problems with his relationship with his players go and go then watch Mike Flynn's interview after this because he's really not in great he's not in great spirits at the moment Mike Flynn and it's it makes me think that they might part ways at the end of this season because the team's bad Flynn's hating every second of it no evidence that his criticism of the players is motivating them. Um, I'd be interested to know if the Walsall board feel like they're getting what they wanted from Mike Flynn because it's been a peculiar season that looked like it might take off at one point and just simply didn't and now is, is kind of going the other way. But certainly watching those two manager interviews back-to-back -back is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's chalk and cheese, really, in terms of how to uh, use the press to talk to your players and motivate your players. Uh, Donny Nil Crew 2. George, uh, probably annoying to hear if, if you're a crew fan, they haven't won loads this season, but I do feel like the strongest thread here is just neggy Donny and worry for Donny as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no immediate danger to, to Donny because as we've discussed, they've won a bizarre amount of games this season given how, you know, often when we criticise teams, you can be inundated by messages from their fans telling you you're biased and you don't know what you're talking about. But um, I think our negativity around Doncaster this season is reflected in their own fans and how they think about what's happened at the club. It's bizarre. Um, they are capable of putting in performances. They've seen them get, is it, what, 17 wins this season? Um, but the, the the kind of level that they normally play at 
or you know the flip side of that was 15 wins this season is really poor as I said they've lost 18 games this season that's the same amount as Hartlepool who are sitting in, in 23rd um, if, if a lot of those wins were draws they would be in a relegation battle right now um, so yeah it's 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 you know Danny Schofield is a manager who I think we can just basically ignore um, the Huddersfield tenure um, you know he didn't come out with a massive credit obviously but I don't think we can blame him uh, outright, you know, out, outright for what happened there but he's been at Doncaster for quite a long time now and I've seen very very little in terms of, of redeeming um, the job that he's doing redeeming qualities um, and their recruitment last summer was incredibly poor so I find it hard sitting here to be saying much positive about them with crew you know it's a, a, a good result for them I guess they're up to 17th now um, after kind of looking like they might flow at the, the relegation it's been a, a better few weeks for them so um, yeah I mean it's 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 two sides who've had pretty underwhelming campaigns with, with crew finishing um, the better of the two relegation bottom two both one mm. George I've got a strong sense that the relegation candidates in League Two this year are a lot stronger than the average quality of relegation candidates in League Two over the last five or six years, where there's almost always been a basket case, sometimes two, sometimes three. And there have almost always been teams that are so bad and tail off so strongly that they pick up next to no points whatsoever. That is not the case for Hartlepool. It's not even really the case for Rochdale, despite their poor points tally. Like I don't think they've been as embarrassingly bad as a lot of teams who have been 24th in League 2 in April in the last few years. Yet they are there. So I almost feel bad for these two teams at their timing, really. It's bad timing for them. But they're not giving up yet. Talk to me about Hartlepool 2, Swindon 1. I mean, Hartlepool's performances since uh, ASCII came in have have clearly been much better. Uh, And they're a better team now than they have been pretty much the whole time since they've been back in 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 the EFL. You know, they, they're unbeaten in a few. Uh, their home form and performances are very good. They were unlucky not to beat top of the league recently. Um, they won this one, coming back from 1-0 down to win 2-1 late on. Um, an unbelievable goal to win it as well. Um, a, a strike from range. Um, and yeah, I mean, they look to me to be a team who are going to collect points between now and the end of the season. So the likes of Harrogate, Colchester, Crawley, are going to have to do the same, otherwise they're going to get sucked into it. You know, we've seen Crawley be resurgent under Scott Lindsay, despite the the defeat against Mansfield. Um, Colchester and Harrogate are the two that are troubling me uh, right now. I mean, Colchester look uh, very, very poor again. Um, you know, I think it's a frustrating one for their fans who basically thought they were clear a couple of months ago under Matt Bloomfield, and and you know the reversal has seen them sink back down to the bottom end of the table and, and for Harrogate as well you know it's a decent one all draw that they got away at um, Tranmere you know they beat Barrow in the game before that um, a crucial four points but similarly I, I don't know how much I necessarily trust them to to get the points that they do need I mean they, they are at least fairly solid right now um, but again it feels strange you know I think because teams beneath them picking up points I think Harrogate would have thought when they beat Doncaster at the beginning of March um, when they beat Barrow, you know these should have been the results that took them away from this. Yet they're still embroiled in, in the relegation battle, which supports what you say. I mean, I would say that Rochdale, it's, you know, I think recency bias might be playing a part here. I, I do think that Rochdale, for the most part of the season, have been pretty abject. Um, yeah, it was a, a good one 0 win for them at AFC Wimbledon uh, and an important one at that. Although, you know, it's it's, it's very very unlikely that they're going to be able to get the points that they need. But they are 
are not quite as basket casey as some of the ones we've said goodbye to in the past but they've still had a, a pretty desperate um 12 months i might see if i can put some numbers on the bones of this okay. look at look at some uh some metrics with which we can try and measure badness <laughs> of like, uh, of lead to relegation what about calendars. why look, do you go they, through I mean, go, go through all the games and give each team three points for a win one for a draw and none for a defeat <laughs> and see what happens <laughs> Uh, you bastard. Um, <laughs> uh, Rochdale beat AFC Wimbledon. So there you go. They may have only had two shots total. I just, so. I just spoke about it. I know. Well, I just think you should give them more credit. Because really bad teams don't score those kind of goals either. Lovely, lovely bit of In, in response to me saying... In, it was a great goal. In response to me saying Thank that you. the recency bias might be playing a part in this, you're telling me to focus more on the game that just went on Saturday. Yeah, but you didn't say it was a good goal. I thought that was good <laughs> Rochdale... Sacked Jim Bentley just after the pod last week. They got Jim McNulty in as an interim. They communicated with the fans a day later with a board statement, which sort of read as if they were like, yeah, we're going to be relegated, aren't we? So we're kind of getting in front of that. Uh, They also said it's important at this stage to accept the fact that while the manager picks the team, they can never be held 100% responsible in isolation for on-field results, whether those results be positive or negative. As well as first team management, other departments, including club leadership, must share that responsibility. As such, the board of directors have commissioned leading football consultancy service Market Insights to conduct a thorough review of football operations at that club. We will be watching with great interest to see uh, how uh, markets impact with this thorough review uh, will affect Rochdale and hopefully improve their decision making going forward. I love the admission, public admission, that they've not done a very good job overseeing the operation of a football team because not many bad owners uh, admit that. Uh, Just a shame that it's been realised probably too late. Uh, Cole, you nil. Newport nil was described by Dan. Newport fan on NTT20 squad as the worst game he'd seen all season. Uh, and as you've said, Cole, you need to be quite careful. And Tranmere 1, Harrogate 1 wasn't quite the the beautiful Doors diamond um, win with loads of goals that I was hoping for, George. Um, would it make you think more or less of me if I said I watched a large part of Tranmere Harrogate on my phone in an Irish pub in Paris on Friday night? Are you joking? It makes me think the world of you. Well, it's lucky I definitely didn't do that then, eh? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was quite entertaining, to be honest. Um, Yeah, Tramia games are going to be a bit more fun than they have been for the next few weeks. Anyway, uh, Easter weekend comes soon. More like Christmas weekend, really, for EFL fans. Games on Friday, games on Monday. Our schedule is... Well, betting show for the Good Friday fixtures will drop on Wednesday afternoon, so the normal amount of time between betting show release and the games. Uh, Next Tuesday, we'll be back with a roundup of the carnage. Uh, I'm going to be on BBC Radio 5 Live on Monday afternoon, so join me and the gang going around the grounds and reacting to what could be a few promotions. It would be quite exciting if that was the case. And make sure that you're signed up too. The EFL newsletter by NTT20. Head to ntt20.substack.com. Read the weekend notes. Get excited for mailbags and weekend previews and much, much more. Someone, George, on the squad, who I did not pay to say this, (laughs) said, already at the point where I can scarcely remember how I may do without the NTT20 emails. Fantastic work. Sign up today, ntt20.substack.com. And if you're enjoying it, please send it to exactly one friend. Thanks to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast, to George for putting up with me, and to you as well. Cheers. Go well.